Good morning. Happy Sunday, April the 30th. It's a great day in the Lord today. Our sermon today is a, is a continuance of our series on the final countdown. The sermon is on the scroll of life and death, taken from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you just a moment to turn there now. As we enter this fifth chapter, I think it's time for a good time for a little review. In chapter 4, we saw John being caught up into heaven. When he arrives there, he sees God himself sitting on a glorious throne. John sees heaven arranged as a courtroom. Arranged as a courtroom. God is preparing to unleash his wrath on the inhabitants of the earth. In the midst of this awesome scene, we also see that heaven is filled with the praises of Jehovah. Heaven understands what the Lord is about to do, and the inhabitants of that city praise the Lord for his glory, his power, and for his creation. They are also acknowledging his right to judge the earth. It seems that John is taken to heaven to give him a heavenly perspective concerning what is about to happen on the earth. I mentioned this last week, but it's still true. When the events of this earth are viewed from a purely earthly perspective, they cause fear, doubt, and confusion. But when all the events of history are viewed through the eyes of heaven, everything makes sense. So chapter 4 ends with God receiving the praise of his created ones and of his redeemed ones. Heaven throbs with the voices of those caught up in their love for Almighty God. Chapter 5 finds us in the same courtroom in heaven. Now praise has ceased for a moment, and heavenly business is about to be transacted, and we are about to have a front row seat as it's acted out. Our text today is taken from Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven, or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll, or even look inside it. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll, or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lord. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, 
numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. We're about to find out that in heaven, Jesus is the central figure. He's the center of attention. The Bible tells us heaven will be a glorious, wonderful place. It tells us it will be streets of gold, walls of jasper, gates of pearl, and more glory than you and I can ever possibly imagine. I believe it will be great to see Abraham, Moses, Paul, Peter, and the rest. But the main attraction of heaven will be Jesus himself. In this passage, we're going to see Jesus himself in his rightful place, glorified and exalted in heaven. The passage sets the stage for the judgments that will come upon the tribulation. It also reveals Jesus in his exalted glory. Let's look at these verses and consider the thought. Worthy is the Lamb. So we start with the mysterious scroll. As this chapter begins, God is said to be holding a book. Now this is not a book like you and I think of a book. It's actually a scroll. Paper was made in long sheets, and as it was written on, it could be rolled up. A portion would be written, and it would be rolled up and sealed. Another portion would be written, and that portion would be rolled up and sealed. The scroll God holds has seven seals on it. This is a mysterious scroll. Let's see if we can unravel the mystery. Let's look at the character of this scroll. As we read these verses, the character of this scroll becomes pretty clear. First, it has something to do with man, verses 2 to 4. Second, it has something to do with the earth. In Revelation 6, the seals of the scroll began to be opened and the contents of the scroll were read. When they are, they reveal what will be happening on the earth during the tribulation period. Third, it seems this scroll has something to do with redemption. When Jesus takes this scroll, he is praised for his redemptive work. Revelations 5, verses 9 through 10. This is a book of redemption. Redemption is something that we talk about a lot. It's an important truth. Understanding redemption is vital to understanding God's great plan for the ages. To understand redemption, we need to begin with the Old Testament. In that time period, three things could be redeemed. A slave could be redeemed. If a master lost a servant, he could pay a redemption price and buy that servant back. That's what Jesus did when he came to die on the cross for us. We have been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. A wife could be redeemed. If a woman was left as a widow with no male children, a close kinsman of her dead husband could redeem her and her husband's inheritance by paying a redemption price. This is seen in the book of Ruth. When Boaz paid the price to redeem Ruth, 
and her dead husband's inheritance. Jesus died on the cross to redeem a bride unto himself. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. Land could be redeemed. If a man lost the land he'd been given as an inheritance, he could buy his property back by paying a redemption price. This truth is demonstrated in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah's uncle had lost a piece of property. Jeremiah's cousin comes to him when he's in prison and asks Jeremiah to buy back the property. Jeremiah does this and records the transaction on a scroll and seals it up. In seminary, we studied they would record the information related to the redemption on both sides of a scroll. On the inside, they would write the reason the land was forfeited. On the outside, they would write the terms of the redemption. Apparently, they kept two copies of this transaction. One was open to the public for all to read, and another copy was kept sealed up. These scrolls were laid up in the temple in earthen jars for safekeeping. Jeremiah serves the function of a kinsman redeemer for the property that belonged to his uncle. What we're witnessing in Revelation 5 is the heavenly version of what men did in Old Testament times. If you will notice, the book God holds is written on both sides. It is written up and sealed just like a deed. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not just die for us. He also died for a ruined creation. Romans 8, verses 22 through 23. You see, in the contents of the scroll, the biblical text seems to indicate it's the title deed to the planet Earth. When man sinned in Eden, sin entered this universe. Man fell that day, and God's creation came under a tragic curse. We will never know the full extent to which sin has ruined creation, but we do know that when Adam fell, creation fell also. Here's the problem. When God made man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, God gave man dominion over all of creation. You look at Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28. We know that when man fell, he gave away his dominion, and Satan became the god of this world. When God sent Jesus to redeem, redeem mankind on the cross, the blood of Jesus redeemed fallen sinners. But it was and is also sufficient to break the bondage of sin over creation. The second Adam bought back everything the first Adam gave away. So this scroll in the hand of God is written within and without. On the inside is the tragic story of sin, tragedy, death, failure, defeat. On the outside are the terms of redemption. If we could read these terms, we would find that the Redeemer must be one who's willing to redeem and one who is worthy to redeem. So after meticulous search, there's little information regarding the character and the content of this mysterious scroll John saw in the hand of God. But for the next few verses, the scroll is front and center in heaven as a search is made for one who's worthy to break the seals and read the contents of that scroll. So an angel asks the all-important question, who is worthy to open the book? The question is this, who's morally fit to read the text of this scroll and to carry out all that is necessary to redeem the earth? Notice the angel didn't say who's willing to open the book. There have been many men down through the ages 
They were more than willing, but they were not able. More than one ruler has determined that he would have dominion over the earth. Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the time he was 33 and wept because there was no more lands to conquer. He didn't redeem the world. He left it worse than he found it. Before him, Nebuchadnezzar saw himself as the greatest ruler ever. He's not worthy to take dominion either. Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, Charlemagne, Adolf Hitler, and scores of others were more than willing to have dominion over the earth, but they were not worthy. Soon the world will see the rise of a demonically charged man-mad called the Antichrist. He will come far closer than any mortal man to ruling the world, but in the end, he will merely run the world. He too will prove that he's unworthy to possess the title deed to this planet and to rule over all within it. Thank God there is one who is worthy to take the book and open its seals. We will discover why he is worthy in just a few minutes. A search was made throughout heaven for one who's worthy to take the book and open it. They searched heaven above, heaven beneath, and earth in between. They could find no one worthy to take the book. You see, there was no saint in heaven, not Abraham, Moses, David, Paul, found worthy. Gabriel, Michael, and all the angelic hosts in heaven were not worthy to take that book. No one living on the earth, no king, no president, no ruler, no billionaire, no politician, no scientist, no preacher, no one was worthy to take the book. Not one in hell, no demon, no doomed sinner, not even Satan himself was worthy to take that book. They searched high and low, but no man was found who was even worthy to look upon the book that rested in the hand of Almighty God. When the results of the search were made public, something happens in heaven that's probably never happened before or since. John burst into tears. I want you to look at this, lean into it. There are two words used for weeping in the New Testament. One is used in John 11.35, where the Bible says Jesus wept. That word refers to a silent weeping. Jesus stood at the tomb of his friend, and he wept in silence. The other word is used when Jesus wept over, wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19.41. This word refers to uncontrollable sobbing. It's the kind of crying that a small child does when its little heart is broken. It's the kind of weeping you see when someone loses a loved one unexpectedly. It's open, unabashed weeping. It's the same word out of John's weeping in this verse. John is in heaven and he's weeping out loud because no one, no one is worthy to open the book or even look upon it. Why is John weeping? I think John knows what the book represents. He knows that if no one can open the book, creation is doomed to feel the effects of sin for eternity. John's tears represent the tears of all humanity since man fell in Eden. John weeps for all of us. However, we've seen that the mysterious scroll and, and with the meticulous search that was made in these verses, we met the, meet the one who's worthy to take the book and to look on the book and to open the book. We are introduced in these verses to a magnificent Savior. John is weeping 
But one of the elders comes to him and gives him some encouraging news. He tells John to wipe his eyes and stop his crying because while no mere man, man is worthy, one has been discovered who is. Let's examine this worthy one together. Notice the elder's words. Weep not, behold. Then he points John to Jesus. That is the message the church has been preaching for over 2,000 years. Weep not, behold. Regardless of the problem, Jesus is the solution. Weep not. Look to Jesus and he will meet the need. What a savior. To the conquering lion. The elder tells John that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Judah, has prevailed. When John hears the title, Lion of the Tribe of Judah, he immediately knows that the elder is referring to the Messiah. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, the Jews are promised that a great ruler will rise out of Judah. Like a lion, he will be powerful, strong, brave, majestic, and he will be a mighty conqueror. The Jews are looking for a Messiah who would throw off the yoke of their oppressors and give them liberty. They're looking for a military leader to lead them to victory over their enemies. Many of them still are. This person is also called the Root of David. This title reflects both the humanity and the deity of the Messiah who has to come. He would raise up the withered branch of the line of David and bring it to power once again. That's the human side of the Messiah. But he was also the power behind the throne. The Messiah was the root out of which David sprang. So he was a king and he was the king of kings. When Jesus came to this world claiming to be the Messiah, he didn't fulfill the expectations of the Jewish people. You see, instead of delivering the Jews from their bondage in a great military victory and establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth, Jesus went around healing, preaching, and performing miracles. As a result, the Jews rejected him and their Messiah and crucified the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David. When John hears of Jesus in heaven, he's described as a mighty lion and as a king and as the king of kings. John is told that this lion has prevailed, so Jesus is described as a conquering lion. Let's look at the crucified lamb. When John turns around to see this mighty conquering lion, he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. Here the word lamb means a little lamb, a pet lamb. When John looked, he expected to see a great and powerful lion. What he saw instead was a little pet lamb. Of course, this scene is wrapped up in Jewish symbolism also. With this image of the little lamb, we're reminded of the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, the people of Israel were instructed to select a perfect lamb, one without blemish and without spot. They were to take that lamb into their home and nourish it and care for it for a number of days. During that time, you know what happened. That little lamb became like a pet lamb to that family. Then on the prescribed day, they were to take that lamb, kill it, apply its blood to the doorposts of their home, roast its little body, and eat it. When the people did this, they were promised that they would be spared when the Lord came to judge the Egyptians. Don't you know it broke the hearts of that little family to kill that pet lamb? Of course it did. But in that little dead lamb, the Israelites were given a power picture of what the Lord was going to do someday through the Redeemer he was going to send into the world. Just as that family would kill their pet lamb, God would judge his son on Calvary's cross. 
Oh, how it must have broken a God's heart to send his son into a world filled with people who would hate him, reject him, and crucify him. How it must have broken the heart of our Lord to judge the son in this place of sinners. But you see, it was on that cross that heaven won the greatest victory of all time and eternity. We're told that the lion lamb has prevailed. This word means to carry off the victory. And because Jesus is a lamb does not mean that he's weak. Jesus carried off the victory at every possible turn. He carried off the victory on the Mount of Temptation. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Satan thought Jesus would fall. He carried off the victory in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verses 38 through 44. Satan thought Jesus would fall. He carried off the victory on the cross in John 19, 30. Satan thought Jesus was a fool. He carried off the victory when he rose from the dead. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. Satan thought Jesus was finished. I don't know. Maybe Satan thought he had defeated Jesus when Jesus died on that cross. Hell might have celebrated as the broken, bleeding body of Jesus was removed from that cross and placed in that borrowed tomb. For three days, the demons and devils of hell might have cavorted in glee as they celebrated what they thought was Satan's victory over the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I use the word might here because Satan knows the word of God better than most of you do. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus? In Matthew 4, 6, Satan says to Jesus, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You see, in military strategy, what Satan might have thought was his greatest victory was in fact his greatest defeat. The cross was God's greatest accomplishment. In that cross, God displayed more power and glory than he did in creation. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it was a far greater achievement than when he said, let there be. Jesus is called the Lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. Satan, the Lamb's enemy, is described as a great red dragon, Revelation 12. Satan's power is described as massive. He masses a great human army and a great demonic army, all intent on defeating God. Heaven's response to this vast display of infernal power is to send a little lamb. When a nation chooses a symbol, they usually choose an animal that suggests power and authority. The lion is the symbol of Great Britain. The bear is the symbol of Russia. The eagle is the symbol of the United States of America. When heaven looked for a symbol, it shows a slain lamb, a symbol of meekness, submission, and gentleness. Jesus conquered Satan's kingdom not by military might, but by meekness, compassion, love, and submission. So a little pet lamb won the victory, and because of that, he's worthy to take the book. Before we leave this thought, let's take a moment to examine this lamb in a little more detail. You see, this lamb's in heaven. He's not in a dirty manger. He's not on a dusty road in Galilee. He's not in a ship on a storm. He's not sitting weary and thirsty on the rim of a well. He's not hanging in shame and agony on a cross. He's not lying in a cold, sealed tomb. He's where he deserves to be. He's on the throne. He's in heaven. 
He's glorified and exalted. This lamb had been there all along. This lamb had been in the middle of the action all along. John had not seen him until now, but he had been there the entire time. Let me remind you that Jesus is always in the midst when we gather. We might not recognize him, but he's always there. Look at Matthew 18, verse 20. The lamb still bore the marks of having been slain. When we see Jesus in heaven, we will see the marks of suffering on his body. For all eternity, Jesus will bear the wounds of the cross as a constant reminder of what he did for us. There will be no room for pride in heaven. No one will be able to brag about how he or she got there. When we see him, we will see his love on permanent display. We will have a beautiful cause for continuous worship and praise. You see, the lamb was standing. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, we're told that he sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He sat down because his work of redeeming sinners was complete. He stands in these verses because his work of delivering the earth is about to begin. The lamb has seven eyes. He's all-wise and all-knowing. This lamb is omnipotent. You see, nothing escapes his gaze. The lamb takes the book out of the hand of God. When he does, heaven breaks out in an anthem of praise. Heaven knows that Jesus is about to do the work of the lion and deliver the earth and all creation from the bondage of Satan and from the blight of sin. He's about to complete his redemptive work. You see, the lamb's worthy to take the book and open the seals. If the scroll really is the title deed to the planet Earth, what right does he have to open it? There are at least three reasons why he has his right. The world is his by the right of creation. He made it. The world is his by the right of Calvary. He redeemed it. The world is his by the right of conquest. He will retake it. One day in heaven, the Lamb will take the seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of the Father. And when he does, it will signal the beginning of the end for sin and for Satan. On that day, Jesus will receive the glory that he's been denied by the world for so long. He will be shown to be worthy of worship and to rule and reign over all creation. He's earned the right because he squared off against all of hell and he carried off the victory. Jesus is a winner. Those who know him as their Savior are winners too. When Jesus stands, takes that scroll, and opens it, we will be standing there watching. And we will rejoice as he takes the world by force. Let me ask you a question today. Who is Jesus to you? Hmm? Who is Jesus to you? He will be who you let him be. He will be who you let him be. He will be a lion who will come to conquer and judge you someday if that's what you want him to be. 
or he will be a lamb who will conquer your sins and save your soul. I'm glad I know the lamb. And because I do, I will never have to face the lion. What about you? If you've never accepted Christ today, I beg you to do so. You don't need a preacher in front of you. You just need to kneel down wherever you are and ask Jesus into your heart and accept him as your personal savior. Baptism comes later. It is our, one of our first commandments after being saved is to be baptized. If you've accepted Christ and you haven't lived a Christian life, you've allowed the things of the world to come in between you and Jesus, I urge you to pray a prayer of redemption and ask God to forgive you. I taught on forgiveness my very first sermon on this radio. You know, one of the best things about forgiveness is the fact that when God forgives you, he remembers the sin no more. Remember that? Over a month and a half ago, I preached that sermon. When God forgives you, he does not remember the sin. And when you stand before God, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, he cannot see your sins. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, I pray for all those within the range of my voice and those who may hear this sermon after. Father, those that have not accepted Christ, Father, I ask you to touch them. Deal with them, Lord. And help them understand the need to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before it's too late. Heavenly Father, if there are those out there that maybe were like I was, who had accepted Christ but had stopped living for him, or maybe they thought that their sin was too great to be forgiven. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all sin. It doesn't matter how bad you think it is. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe in Jesus. So, Father, I ask you to be with them, deal with them, Lord, and turn them into mighty workers for you. Father, I love you, and I praise your name. It's in Jesus Christ's holy name I pray. Amen. If you made a decision today, I'd like to know about it. You can send an email to ministry at christ-lives.org or you can visit www.christ-lives.org, our website, and you can leave a message on the contact page. I promise you I'll share these emails with nobody unless you ask me to. Thank you for your time today. And may God bless you and keep you. Amen.